Well, well, good morning again. Our passage this morning is found on page 7 there in your order of worship. Heard a rumor that we may have run out of some bulletins, and so if you would like to use that chair Bible there in front of you, that dark blue book, it's found on page 813. And if you're here today visiting and you don't have a Bible at home, please take that with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. <clears throat> and so let's look together this morning at an unusual passage for Christmas Day, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you. Do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country, the Gerasenes, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in speech that we might know you and know your truth. And so, Lord, as we come before you today, we ask, Lord, that you would once again open this text up to us. We pray, Lord, that this enigmatic text, weird to look at on this day of all days, would surprise us and that we would behold the beauty of your gospel in it. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I know what you're thinking right now. Some, um, I brought my family here. <laughs> Demons, seriously? What does this have to do with Christmas, right? Why are we doing the demon stuff in the Bible on this of all days? Well, for the same reason, frankly, we talk about Santa Claus in some of our homes. Because the universe is not a predictable machine with no mystery. Incarnations and resurrections don't happen in that universe. But the universe in Scripture is full of mystery, teeming with natural and supernatural life. And that's the biblical picture. And demons are a part of that picture. So, okay, what are they? Well, the Bible says they're angels who chose to rebel against the Creator. The worldview of Scripture teach to, teach, uh, 
treats them as very real things, but it isn't just the Bible. The Atlantic, back in 2018, cited recent polls from both Gallup and YouGov.org that suggested half of your fellow Americans believe in the reality of demons. In an article in 2019, the Bishop of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, just Indianapolis, said that their official exorcist by March of that year, end of the first quarter, had already received a thousand requests for help in 2019. The DSMV-5, if you know what that is, that's what psychologists use to actually classify mental disorders and how severe they are, actually now makes room for what could be called demonic possession. One of the doctors behind the change basically said, well, Westerners draw a sharp line between the material and the non-material world. No one else in the world really does, and so this reflects that reality. And note in our text today, the text doesn't even try to prove it. It just says he had demons. Very diagnostic from Luke, who's referred to as a physician, who throughout his work, Luke distinguishes between natural physical sickness that Jesus heals and spiritual oppression that Jesus confronts. So ancient views about disease were not superstitious. Luke was simply not being a modern Westerner, and he simply could not ignore the non-material things happening in front of him. So I want to keep that in mind as we walk through this passage today, and I promise you we're going to get to Christmas and why we're at this. So stick with me. So this narrative starts with him landing in a non-Jewish, a Gentile area, hence the pigs later. This guy accosts Jesus. The image is he runs right up to Jesus as soon as Jesus steps off the boat. Maybe he saw Jesus calming the storm from the sea. I don't know. But for some reason, he is interested and runs right up to him. The storm story right before this, if you know the story, Jesus calms a storm right before this. That ends with the disciples asking the question, who is Jesus? He can do this. And this story begins with, we get, a, we get the answer. This guy runs up in verse 28 and says, Jesus is the son of the most high God. These demons at this point actually have better theology than the disciples. So this man is in really bad shape. Luke very quickly in a few verses tells us about his humiliation and his isolation. In verse 27, he's naked. He's living among the tombs. He has no home tells us about his subjugation in verse 29. He's chained up and under guard. Mark's version of this story tells us that he would cut himself and cry out. All that mess runs up to Jesus. So Jesus asked with a very authoritative, what's your name? And the answer is legion. But one of the other accounts says, legion for we are many. It's a military term for four to 6,000 soldiers. Mark's account says that the herd of pigs had around 2,000 pigs in it, so maybe there's around 2,000 demons in this guy. I don't know. It's an overwhelming presence of demons in this man. And here's what's crazy about this, besides it just being crazy in general, right? It's, of the records we have of possessions and, and the, that Jesus handles in the New Testament, this is one of the oddest. I mean, why? Are there all these demons in one guy? I mean, think about it, like, let's call it strategically, shall we? Satan, couldn't he have done a lot more damage, whatever he was trying to do, with like one demon in 2,000 people each running around messing up stuff? Why is he putting all these evil resources into one man? You ever ask that question when you go through this passage? Those of you who have read it before? We have a hint at what's going on here. 
in the phrase in verse 28 that they call Jesus the Son of the Most High. It's actually used in one other place in Luke's gospel. We've seen it before. Back when the angel comes to tell Mary what's happening in her body. Back in Luke chapter 1 verse 32, he says this to her about Jesus. says, he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. I think we have Luke 132. There we go. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. So right back there, the angel comes and the angel says it to Mary about Jesus. And here the fallen angel says it to Jesus himself. Back in Luke 1, shepherds take the report about Jesus to Bethlehem. And here shepherds take the report about Jesus to their town. We could do a lot of parallels between the nativity story and this story. And that's why we're here at Christmas because we're actually seeing another side of the nativity right here. Let me, I want you to feel this. So here's what's going on. So I grew up watching Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, Scooby-Doo, Gen Xers. Come on, anybody else? Right, come on, come on. Thank you, very good. Okay, now, now what we'll tell you is that from that, we expected our childhood to be much more full of quicksand, dynamite, and counterfeiters than it actually is. And that's what's happening right here. We have a counterfeiter in our midst. And we don't have a group of kids and a dog to solve it. We have Jesus to solve it. We have a pitiful attempt to match the real thing happening right here. What's the real thing? Well, right after humanity rebelled, God promised that he would send someone to fix that rebellion. He would not leave them in the state. Instead, he would send someone to fix it. Way back in Genesis 3, 15, God makes this promise. He says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, God pronounces this curse on the woman, then on the man, then on the serpent. And notice what he says to the serpent. He goes, you're going to have a line of people. She's going to have a line of people. But one is going to come who's going to crush your head. He promised to end the damage Satan had done. And this champion would be wounded in the process. This is the first promise in the Bible of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the rest of the Old Testament is actually the working out of that promise and Satan sending all kinds of external enemies trying to exterminate the line of the woman to stop the promised he from coming. See, the Christmas story is truly amazing because God sustained that promise for thousands of years of the Old Testament and then God himself came. God himself put on flesh in the form of a baby. Eternity entered into time to become one of us. Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. We call this the incarnation. It's what we celebrate every Sunday, but especially at Christmas. See, and Satan knew that was coming. Satan believed Genesis 3.15. Satan saw the incarnation. He knew that Jesus was this promised champion who would crush him. So Satan stuffs all these demons into one guy in a pitiful attempt to match the incarnation, to create his own champion. It's the worst Christmas ever because this Legion guy is a counterfeit Jesus. In the Bible, Satan's a liar. He's a twister of reality. 
And he offers people a fake hope, a counterfeit Jesus, even to this day. If you're here and you're married, he tempts you that really fulfillment and joy is not in this committed monogamy stuff. It's in indulging your desires. Do what you want. If you're single, he tempts you, doesn't he? You're not whole without a relationship. So you have to give yourself up to somebody, anybody, so you can have meaning, so you can have a purpose. This time of year, might be a little late for this now, but your family will only be happy if you overspend. They have to have much more stuff to open on Christmas morning or they'll, ruin, they'll have a ruined childhood. That's the only joy, stuff. See, Satan is all about putting counterfeits in front of people so they'll not find joy and fulfillment in Jesus. But notice even here, Satan's minions, Satan's own champion know it's powerless, it's fake, it's counterfeit. All of those dark resources, 2,000-some demons respond to Jesus in verse 31 with fear and begging. They admit that Jesus gets to command them, say, please give us orders to go over here. Please don't hurt us. I mean, it's the worst Christmas ever for Satan because his champion walks right up to Jesus and starts begging, please don't hurt me. So Jesus gives them permission to go into this herd of pigs. They enter the pigs, and they promptly destroy themselves, which is weird, right? This is a weird passage. I thought about naming this sermon when pigs fly, but, you know, that would be, because, I mean, how many opportunities are you going to have, right? Some I mean, what was the point of them entering the pigs in the first place? Well, in Scripture, the devil is all about stealing, killing, and destroying. Satan is behind every self-destructive behavior. Every time, young people, that friend of yours cuts themselves, or maybe you do, Satan's behind that. He wants you to hurt himself, yourself. And so these pigs do what so many people do what so many people have been tricked into doing. They destroy themselves. See, this passage is about the identity of Jesus more than it is about this possession. So we bring this back, and there's a hint here of the Lord Jesus that his mission will be costly, that getting rid of evil is not easy. This mass death of the herd shows the cost of purging evil. Ultimately, evil will only be destroyed by the death of Jesus himself. So these pig tenders see their pigs fly. So they fly to the city to tell everybody else. Verse 36 makes it clear they saw everything in detail. The whole town comes out to see this Jesus character, and their response, sound familiar, is fear. And what's really interesting is what causes their fear in verse 35. The local madman is changed from a wild animal into a respectable citizen, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed in his right mind, and it scares them. Their response to his salvation is just like the demons, fear and begging, but theirs is actually perverse. Did you catch this? The demons begged, let us leave you. The town begged, you leave us. This reaction right here is so authentic. It's so unidealized, let's call it. It really makes me believe this historical account, which I know this would be one of those things that's easy to doubt. But if they were making this up, you realize this is not how you good, do good propaganda. At this point, the town has a parade for Jesus to show how powerful he is. They don't reject him. It's written as if it's like, 
well, this is what really happened. Let's just do it accurate. See, because few people really want the all-powerful, demon-commanding Lord of creation that deserves worship. We want the hippie Jesus, right? We want the social justice warrior Jesus. We want the morality police Jesus. We want the Jesus that confirms our tribe. The townsfolk fear because this healed man is evidenced of the big Jesus that's fearful and scary. You see, this man has tasted through Jesus the world that's to come, a world that Jesus promises throughout his ministry. There's no more pain, no more futility, no more dysfunction, no more evil, no more death. This man now reeks of that world to his community, and it frightens them. And in that fear, it's their worst Christmas ever because they reject the incarnation of God himself, the only one who could heal them as well. And finally, we see how this healed man responds. He's seated. He's learning from Jesus. He's communing with Jesus. And he responds by begging from Jesus as well. Take me with you. The demons fearfully begged Jesus, and it was granted. The community fearfully begged Jesus, and it was granted. This man lovingly begs Jesus. And the new baby Christian is the only one whose request is denied. Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. Stay here and plant a church. Which means actually the town didn't get what it wanted either because Jesus the man did leave, but Jesus the Savior stayed in his church and was proclaimed. Jesus calls this guy to proclaim, and he does so with fervency. Can you imagine this guy's testimony? I mean, I have a very boring testimony, okay? We moved from Wyoming to Memphis, Tennessee. People across the street invited us to church, so my parents went to church. The Southern Baptist Church was having one of those beautiful things that Southern Baptists do where they have a planned revival. And so we went, my parents forced me to go through the preaching of the gospel four days in a row, and much to my chagrin, at the very end, when they gave an invitation, my parents became Christians. I was like, oh, What? And so they made me go to church, like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, for three years straight. Then all of a sudden, one day, I just remember sitting in Sunday Sunday worship, and I saw it. I saw my sin. I saw my need for a Savior. I realized that Jesus Christ had lived the life I should have lived, and he died the death I should have died, and he was raised for my forgiveness. So I placed my faith and trust in him alone for salvation. So boring. It's the kind of testimony we pray for our kids, right? We want them to have a boring testimony. I know. That's not this guy. Man, I used to run around naked, live in the graveyard. I broke off all the chains, cut myself. Man, I was jam-packed with demons. I had like a whole committee in there. It was kind of crazy. But Jesus set me free, and he'll do it for you too. Right? Yes, sir. (laughs) See, this guy experienced real grace, real transformation. And so he's a Jesus-proclaiming machine. Which tells us something about Jesus, the fact that he stays behind. Jesus left per their wishes, but he also left them an indigenous missionary to plant a church. It's a great picture of Jesus' grace even to those who reject him. Because every one of us in the room, we've rejected Jesus in some way, haven't we? And in his grace, he doesn't abandon us. Oh man, those of us in the room who call themselves, if you call yourself a Christian, Man, that lying counterfeiter 
Satan, he whispers to us all the time, doesn't he? Jesus is tired of your failures. You've pushed the limits of grace. You've worn God out. You're confessing that again? You're a bad Christian. And that's a lie. This passage shows even when we kick Jesus out, he still extends grace to us. Who is this man who can do that? He's the man who is also God, the champion of redemption, who lays down his life for his people, offering them the power of the gospel. Now, do you know that power? I mean, it'd be the worst Christmas ever if you walk out of here without Jesus changing you, even this morning. So, dear Christians in the room, and cast off all those counterfeit hopes that we keep falling into, that we look to instead of Jesus. And once again, let his glorious grace just wash over you. Let his beautiful power heal your life in the gospel. For those of you here today who aren't Christians, man, I hope you heard it. Christianity is not clean up and then come to Jesus. Jesus did not say, man, y'all, take a bath, get some clothes on, quit talking to yourself, and then I'll talk to you about grace. No, Jesus fixes you and then helps you clean up. So repent of all those counterfeits that lie to you, that tell you they'll fulfill you. They won't. And simply place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And then it can be the best Christmas ever. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, as we come before a passage like this this morning, we do pray, Lord, that you would overcome the awkwardness of the story, that, that by your Spirit you would drag us into the grace of Jesus and set us free. Lord, would you forgive us where we have rejected you? And would you once again come to us in power and give us your grace? We pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.